0: Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the coast to coast combat hour. I'm your host Matthew Hawkins along with my co-host Ed carbajal and on a weekly basis we plan to bring you the biggest news and interviews in the world of combat sports. Ed, how you doing?
1: Pretty good. Pretty good. It's been nice weather so can't complain. Hot out there? uh hot enough to make a snake drop out on my on my doorstep today so which is a rarity in new jersey so uh i'm I'm pretty sure some hawk like dropped it flying by or something
0: yeah it was it was 115 at my house last weekend luckily i was in vegas for for the fights where it was actually cooler in vegas than in my house which is pretty unheard of Mm. but um i want to jump right to our guest uh Somebody who's been supportive of the show since uh, day one, and uh, a person I met on the road while traveling for fights, um, actually in your neck of the woods in New York, um, John, Lew- or John Lewis, John Lucas. Um, John, how you doing? Good, thanks. Must be that jujitsu on my <laughs> mind. I got John, John Lewis thinking th- in yeah. my head. But, uh, but thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, you've been a, a martial artist, I know, for almost two decades now. Um, how did you get started in that? So,
2: you know, like a lot of people when I was in uh, elementary school and high school was, you know, kind of interested in karate. And you know, that was in the 70s, 80s, early 90s. And, you know, was into all the karate movies. And then, you know, Jean- Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal, when they came out and always wanted to train. But I lived in a fairly small town and lived a ways out of town. So there just wasn't really any access to the martial arts except for the occasional friend who trained who would kind of, you know, do the, hey, grab my wrist. Let me show you this cool move sort of thing. So I was always interested. And then when I went to college, I met a guy who had trained some ninjutsu uh, when he was in high school. So he and I would kind of, you know, move furniture out of the the common area in the dorm and, you know, kind of sort of half spar and, you know, do sort of spazzy white belt sort of stuff. And after kind of doing that for a while, we found out there was a place around the corner where they had a, a sensei who had a little school that did Aiki uh, Jiu he Called it, he had done Aikido and kind of split from the Aikido, um, I don't know what you call it, association, and started off doing what he called Aiki Jiu Jitsu. So, we decided we'd join up and train there. So, I trained there for a couple of years, and then when I uh, went to medical school, there was a formal Aikido school not too far away. So, I did Aikido through medical school, and then once I moved down to South Carolina for residency and fellowship, my time was Pretty free time was pretty sparse. I wasn't able to train, but I always thought if I ever found a place where I could train jujitsu, I wanted to do that because while I was doing Aikido, like a lot of folks, eventually VCR tape of I think I saw UFC 2 first, and then after enjoying that, found UFC 1 and 3 and saw Hoist Gracie doing his thing. I was like, wow, this stuff's awesome. You know, he's about my size and he's beating up on all these bigger dudes. I want to learn how to do that someday. So eventually when i moved to the upstate of south carolina there my son was getting old enough to start in karate as a kid and then my wife had heard from a bunch of people about the thompson's place upstate karate and pitch black so started training him there and they had a sign in the window saying that they did brazilian jiu-jitsu so i asked about it and they're like yeah we've got a brazilian jiu-jitsu program which actually at the time was only partially true they had one their instructor had just left but I joined just after the the instructor they used to have walked out the door and wound up doing kickboxing and MMA for a couple of years before we got somebody else trained up to start doing jiu And then when they restarted the jiu-jitsu program, I was there on the first night and have been training for the eight and a half years since. And it was worth the wait.
0: Yeah, you mentioned you were going to college. Um, we'll get into that here shortly about uh, how you became a, a, a doctor um, and eventually start working uh... – as a ringside physician for, for several kickboxing and, and martial arts events. But um, want to stick with the, the martial arts aspect aspect of uh, your history a little bit. Um, so you saw UFC two. So after you saw Scott Morris, the first ninjutsu guy ever in UFC get crushed by Pat Smith, <laughs> you, you must've felt felt a little bit of redemption seeing Steve Jenham come back <laughs> in UFC three and, and bring home the title as an alternate. <laughs> yeah. You know,
2: by the time I got, exposed ninjutsu you know it was uh, that was probably in 93 94 it was kind of already the time where ninjutsu was sort of falling out of favor and aikido was kind of the thing so when we walked into the aiki jiu-jitsu program and the guy chris that had been the the guy who kind of introduced me to ninjutsu um he, his thing was well you know you've seen what steven seagal does so that's kind of the answer to the the stuff that that we kind of learned in ninjutsu. So. It was, Never really a big ninjutsu aficionado, but it sure looked cool. The idea of becoming a ninja and being able to do, you know, mind control and puff disappearing into a puff of smoke, running across <laughs> water would be yeah, awesome. You could blame Shoky
1: in the eighties yeah. for
2: that. <laughs> never never got to that point. Still still can't run across water and haven't been able to disappear into a puff of smoke, but maybe someday.
1: <laughs> well, different puffs of smoke now with the legalization of marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> But um, uh, let me ask you, John, um, just because of your martial arts experience and, uh, uh, you know, obviously you're a doctor, too, and I know you uh, you, you, you do ringside physician. You get uh, licensed for that? Do you do that in certain states?
2: Yeah. So, you know, medical licensing, just like licensing (laughs) to practice law, is by state. So the only license I maintain is in South Carolina. It's actually fairly expensive to get licensed in a new state. It would probably cost me somewhere in the neighborhood of two to five thousand dollars to get a license for north carolina georgia or tennessee you know the 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 immediate surrounding states to me so i do all the ringside stuff just in south carolina
1: is it um so just because of everything going on i mean it's interesting that matt found you to get get on this week after we took off last week obviously with all the stuff that happened or that's been happening in the sport and uh like with the ufc just overall like like as as somebody that's that's got your level of expertise and everything you've been seeing. What's your take on weight cutting and everything that's been going on the max Holloway situation? Like, how do you feel about, do you think more weight classes are better? Should they listen to what the fighters want? What's your take on all of that?
2: Yeah. So weight cutting is, is kind of the, 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 the torch that I'm most ambitious about bearing. I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff that I've posted on uh, the MMA community and some other places about that, but I actually, sit on the abc medical committee so um have been part of some of the talks about you've probably heard of andy foster who's the yeah. director out in california he came up with that 10 point plan that csac now has in place and um when when that was first brought up through the medical committee i, I thought for sure that by this time that would have been passed in pretty much every state certainly in nevada and new jersey In that the whole weight cutting thing would be on its way out and have been very depressed that that's not been the way that it's happened. So I'm definitely not a big fan of weight cutting. I think that it's it's sort of odd how we got to where we are because if we could snap our fingers and make weight cutting go away, you just kind of have everybody not realize that was possible. With very few exceptions, the same guys would be fighting each other just up a weight class or two. You know, the guys that are welterweight, I'll walk around somewhere between about 195 and 205. Yeah. So those guys that I'll be, you know, light heavyweights or, you know, maybe middleweights. And you'd be seeing better fights because the guys wouldn't be dehydrating themselves to the point that they're, in some cases, you know, if you walked into the ER just as an average guy who'd been out in the heat, as dehydrated as most are. When they weigh in, you would get admitted to the hospital and be there for 24 to 36 hours, get rehydrated, make sure electrolyte's OK, and then, you know, be clear to leave the hospital. And these guys are doing that to themselves. And then 24 hours later, having a, a fight against a world class fighter. It's, it's extremely dangerous. And I, I, I would have also thought that once we had a fighter die, that there'd be a huge outcry. But that's happened now multiple times. And it just kind of gets blown off. Everyone's like, "Oh, yep. Yeah, well, he died. Well, he knew he's getting into." And they're on to the next thing. I don't know if that's because it's it's typically been fighters that are lesser known, or they're not American, and they're not you know known by anybody who's not a super hardcore fan. But I'm hoping that we can get something put in place so that we can get these fights to happen and keep fighters safe before there's a a, a big death or significant injury on a grand scale you know if one of the you know like conor mcgregor or a big time ufc fighter who's more of a household name ends up getting hospitalized because of a weight cutter dies because of complications of cutting weight i think that that's going to be devastating to the sport and it'll be too late to change things it'll be suddenly a huge outcry from oh yeah may not be that big fans and you may see licensing for mma start disappearing from states instead of trying to do something to get rid of weight cutting
1: yeah. And especially here in New York where they just, I mean, it's only been uh, since 2016, they lifted the ban on it. So that's actually a, a big concern too. I think that's why there, some people say that New York's a little bit too weird with the, with the way they're handling things. But I think that's the reason why, um, you know, they had that boxer that suffered the, the, the head trauma. That's like, uh, I forget his name Um, because that, the whole situation was handled bad. He had to take a cab to the hospital or something like that. I know access uh, inside, MMA did a whole expose on it um, back when they were still on the air. But so, yeah, I think I think uh, if something like that does happen, like you said, to a, a big name fighter in the UFC, it's definitely a problem. The, the death you're referring to, that's the one FC, the guy that fought and, and I, I won, right? Yes. Yeah.
0: Ooh. There was a, a guy Ooh. in, um, I think, Jungle Fight or one of the, the Brazilian events. Died exactly. as
3: well.
0: A guy from uh, I think he was Novo Unio, uh, Andre Pettineris's school, I think. Um, I think he's, he's the guy who died and then didn't somebody, uh, I mean, I don't know if it was, it was after the fight, but somebody, Conor McGregor's, uh, one of his guys was fighting, I think somewhere in Europe died too. I don't know if that was related to a weight cutter. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Or an injury, but, um, so what do you, I mean, right now the, 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 the solutions you've talked about that have been, uh, talked, you know, brought up. Do you think that adding more weight classes and stuff like that, it would help at all? I've always argued that someone's just going to see the next weight class is only five pounds away. And it's just going to be a reason for that person to push it a little farther.
2: Yeah. And exactly. And I I think you're exactly right about making little little itty bitty step changes, you know, and I I think that's the issue that we've had like with the UFC moving weigh ins to the morning and Dana White making that statement that he thinks that's more dangerous or a problem. And they're moving it back to the afternoon. The the beauty of the 10-point plan that Andy Foster came up with is that instead of making little steps that each individual thing may have unintended consequences, I think they need to make a whole bunch of wholesale changes at the same time to prevent people from saying, oh, well, now I can cut you know, just a little bit more and be a whole weight class lighter. So I do think adding more weight classes is important, and I think that the weight classes that are mentioned in the 10-point plan, which are more or less every 10 pounds – with the exception of, and the pounds were on the five, so it was 155, 165, and then because of pushback from both the UFC and Bellator, uh, for what they say are contractual reasons, they want to keep 170 and then have 175, 185, 195, 205, 225, 260. I think having more weight classes is important, but they also need to move towards doing both some sort of weight certification, like they do for high school and NCAA wrestling, some sort of hydration testing to make sure that we know how much these guys are dehydrated when they're weighing in so that we don't let people who are 10, 15% dehydrated, you know, crash, rehydrate over 12 hours and then get into a fight the next day. And I also think that doing weigh-ins either just before the event or just after the event to find out how much weight guys are putting back on to get an idea of what their real walk around weight is yeah. is important as well. You know, Andy's done two studies. He did one in MMA And then just recently did one in boxers out in California in something I think in the boxing, which I always assumed that there was a little bit less weight cutting in boxing. than There was in MMA just because of the events I've been to, I don't see the boxers looking quite as drawn out as a lot of the MMA fighters. And because there's so much more, uh, so many more weight classes in boxing than there are in MMA, but they found that 20% of of fighters were cutting more than 15% of their body weight. I think uh, based on, you know what their their weigh in weight was versus their weight at the time of the event. So-
0: one of my one of my arguments has always been um, I always you know it's it, it generally falls on the fighters, but I always try to bring it back to the promoters a little bit. For me, once a guy misses weight in a weight class, he should you know at that point he should be basically on alert where the promotion shouldn't sign that guy to fight in that weight class any longer. Uh, you know if a guy misses by one or two pounds. You know, maybe you give him, you cut him a, a, some slack, but if a guy misses weight by five, six pounds, to me, it should be an instant move up um, to, you know, you don't sign a contract with that fighter. If that guy dies making his next weight cut, I feel like, you know, the, the, the promotion should be held liable almost for, you know, I, I, as a construction guy, if I told somebody to climb a ladder and I knew they had a broken leg and they fall, I'm going to jail for, for telling that person to climb the ladder. If somebody's had trouble cutting weight and and I sign them to a contract to cut another 30 pounds of weight for their next fight um, you know I, I don't I think that should be you know something that that should be changed too once somebody misses weight I don't think you know maybe you give somebody a second chance but I don't think there should be any third chances after you right. miss the second time you should have to fight in the weight class above that
2: yeah and I think there should be some from a, a regulation standpoint I think the athletic commissions need to to make two specific changes. Uh, about the way they handle weight cutting and people missing weight the first is it, it's it's ludicrous to me that especially at the like the ufc and bellator level that we let guys try to cut weight you know so say somebody's trying to make welterweight and they come they weigh in they're one 173 and they say okay well you get an hour you can go try to cut two more pounds that's absolutely crazy to me i think you should get one chance of getting on the scale because i mean it's not like scales aren't available no one I, I find it hard to believe that anybody at that level has gotten on the scale and been surprised that they were over they know darn well that they're having trouble making weight and their cut's yeah. not going well and they're like well we'll go down you know maybe we can find the magic spot in the scale or you know hold on to the towel a little bit or lean on dana or something like that to, to 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 weigh in but when they're when they're heavy you know they've been trying as hard as they can to make weight and they didn't make it i don't think the commission should be able to to extend their time they should say okay you missed weight you get a financial penalty for that. And also um, moving forward, once you've missed weight, I think the next time that fighter fights, the commission should be much more careful about figuring out when they show up to the to the fight week. You know, if they come in on Monday or Tuesday, weighing them and making sure they're within 10% of their weight and probably checking them a couple of times along the way to make sure they're not leaving themselves to cut 10, 11, 12 pounds of water weight in the past 12 hours. And then for sure, if you miss weight a second time, I don't feel comfortable relicensing that fighter to fight at that weight class unless, you know, they'd have to go up for at least a fight or two and then demonstrate at some point in the future that they've reduced their body mass to the point that is reasonable for them to make the next lower weight class again, just like, again, just like they do in, in high school wrestling.
1: So let me ask you just to uh, switch off a little bit, not really switch off of the weight class thing, but, um, with your being a medical professional, the, the stuff that happened at, uh, 226 with uh max holloway's removal did you see any of those interviews where they were citing yeah. his uh concussive uh symptoms
2: so you know i saw the i saw the interview with uh Bisping, where Bisbig actually called him out and was like hey you know you look really tired and i didn't watch that with a uh, an unbiased eye because i had heard what happened before i got back from work and was able to go back and watching the video knowing the fight had already been canceled but You know, when you see him, the way he looks and the way he's talking, you know, he looks like he had either just woken up uh, after a a really hard night of drinking or, you know, smoked the biggest joint you've ever seen. He was clearly out of it and wasn't talking like he normally talks and just didn't seem like he was all there. It's not clear to me exactly what was causing that. You know, it's, I think, somewhat ironically, you've heard that he was too dehydrated, which is fairly unlikely that far out from the fight. You know, he shouldn't be cutting water weight yet. And then I saw recently some people have speculated that he had a stroke. It seems like if that were true, we would probably know about that because they would have done some testing and and been able to prove that and treated that appropriately. Or he was in the middle of water loading, which is what I think is most likely. He was probably doing the drinking deionized deionized water thing and had screwed his electrolytes up enough that he was having some problems because of that. All three of which, though, are very dangerous things that can mm. happen to, you know, during the weight cut, especially in people who are and I'm not accusing Max of doing this, but especially guys who are doing other things like using hyperbaric hypobaric chambers to try to get the hematocrit up or EPO or something like that. So they're they're running their hematocrit higher than they should be. And then they're also cutting weight. Your blood literally gets way too viscous and it makes your risk of stroke extremely high. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, the guys that are doing the deionized water loads, trying to flush electrolytes out of your system, I've seen a number of people or heard of a number of people who have gotten themselves pretty disoriented because of doing that, because they screw their electrolytes up and they start having neurologic symptoms because of it. Either during the the, the part where they're flushing out with, you know, drinking two gallons of DNIs water a day, or at the end of it where they, you know, they go to drinking a gallon, half a gallon a day, a quarter of a gallon, and then nothing for two days while they're doing intense exercise while you're dehydrating yourself so severely like that it's very easy to get your electrolytes enough out of whack that you're in trouble. I mean, you guys go to the weigh-ins, you see what these guys look like. Um, there's a lot of guys who at the time of weigh-in, you know, these are world-class professional fighters, but they look like a toddler could beat them up at that time. Cause they're having trouble standing upright, much less functioning as an athlete.
0: Would you say all the problems since they went to the uh, early weigh-ins is probably more a result, just the fighters not getting up early, you know, not waking up at three in the morning to start their final cut. I always thought that that might be an issue from day one, and I didn't understand why they didn't give the people the whole day basically to weigh in. Um, do you think yeah, that's what it
2: so is? I, I think there's there's two possibilities, and they're not mutually exclusive. One, I think that you know, especially guys that have been doing this for a while, are just used to the you know three, four, five o'clock in the afternoon weigh-ins. So they're used to getting up at their usual eight, nine o'clock and starting their weight cutting process, and they're not getting up earlier to weigh in in the morning. I think that may be part of it, but I think uh more likely for a larger portion of the fighters especially the guys that are you know kind of known to being big in their weight class is they think well i've got an extra you know four five six hours to rehydrate so i can cut an extra two or three pounds so they're walking around a little bit heavier um so i think both of those things probably are contributing
0: to that i know you've been around chris weidman a little bit and i've always brought him up as as one of the biggest middleweights that i've personally ever met
1: he's a monster
0: do you know of him ever yeah, having any is, issues? I mean I know he's never he's, missed weight. Yeah, so that's about
2: about to say, you know, you know he's never missed weight. I've never actually been around him when he's doing a weight cut, but uh, you know, a lot a lot of the guys I've trained with and Steven and, and Ray Thompson in particular been around and it's never been an issue. I've never heard of him having a a bad cut, but he's a good example of somebody. He's been cutting weight since he was a toddler because yeah. he's been, you know, from wrestling, so he's very used to it. He knows what kind of weight he has to be, but he is definitely when I first met him face to face, it is amazing to me that he is as big as he is. And then you look at somebody like Joel Romero, who's looks like he's twice his size and you know oh got so God, much more yeah. muscle mass, it still <laughs> makes the same weight. I just I don't understand how that's physically possible.
1: Yeah, no, I, I uh I, I've I've been to a lot of things that Wideman I actually trained with uh with someone that trained with that uh got the black belt around the same time Weidman got his. And um I mean uh like you said, having seen him physically, like it was at the uh, the first time Aldo and and uh, Holloway fought for the belt, they did a they did a virtual thing here in New York. So he was like a guest at it to get the fans riled up. And I was I was walking as media, I was in the same area as him, so I got to stand right behind him. And I was just like, "How is this guy fight at one eighty five? He's like he's a monster." And the same thing with Y'all Romero um, at uh, when he was walking around, he was in the crowd at the weigh-ins for the last uh, 217 and there was no way you missed him in the crowd because there was this just giant of a man walking around looking at his cell phone and you could tell from far away that that's y'all R- R- Romero I'm glad he's actually going up to 205 because I feel like uh, I, I, at his age I mean there's there's got to be some truth to look at us I mean I'm I don't know how old you are I'm an, I'm, I'm I'm up there and I, I'd like to be 185 and I'm lucky if I get close to 190.
2: Yeah, that's both at UFC events and especially when I go to the local events here. So, you know, you're right with the fighters and doing their physicals and things like that. I walk around about 180 pounds Uh, when I compete in jiu-jitsu, like for the IBJJF, I compete at middleweight, which is up to 181 and a half. So I'll diet down and lose two or three pounds to make sure that I don't go overweight with the gi. But when we're at these fights, I see guys that are, you know, fighting at 145 and in some cases 135. That are bigger than I am significantly bigger than Hmm. I am when they're just kind of walking around and they, you know, they pop into the gym to roll and I'm like, you look familiar, but I'm like, oh, it's because you've actually got, you know, your normal weight on. It's amazing how big some of these guys
0: are for their weight class. Yeah, you know, having met you and then and then having met like somebody like Max Holloway. And I mean, he's basically your size. You know, yeah. I mean, he might, might be a little bit, a little bit smaller, but not much. You know, I, I don't remember exactly when I saw him. It was, it was shortly after one of his fights. Cause he had his, his broken hand. He was casted up, but um, yeah, I mean, he's one of those guys. It seems like he's like one, you know, upper one seventies, one eighty and he's cutting down to one forty five. I just, I mean, I can't even comprehend the idea of trying to lose, you know, 25 pounds or 25% of, of your body weight.
1: You know, the one last thing on Max Holloway I just wanted to comment on because I was actually talking about that. I was visiting with my dad before we started, and uh, we were talking about Max Holloway. I, I think Max Holloway's issue, because uh, and you, you'd have to help me out here on this, Matt, um, with Max Holloway, so they pulled him out of uh, 226 because they didn't like the way they, they lo- he looked on the treadmill when he was cutting. Obviously, we know why they pulled I'm I'm sorry, 220, 223. 226 was uh, was the recent one. And then before that, didn't he have like an arm injury or something? Like, is that the same injury you're talking about? Like, uh, like his arm was he, broken no, he had, or something? He had
0: a supposed, I think, leg or knee injury for two twenty two, and then he quickly turned around and accepted the fight with Khabib. You know, after he told you know that's why Edgar took the fight with uh, Ortega. So because... I'm
1: I'm wondering if he's just training too old school, like like you know like uh, team quests, you know, the back of the car lot or whatever. You know what I mean? Like like just too rough. I'm wondering if he's just in Hawaii, maybe they still go too hard at training, you know, because if he's has a concussion, if he's hurting him, his, himself in training, I know no fighter is without injury, but there's uh they, they, they brought in the UFC performance Institute for a reason.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my alert would have been sent up when I, I realized that he took the Khabib fight on, on a week's notice, give or take a day, but it, it was the weight class heavier than what he fights at. It was that lightweight. So when he can't make lightweight even on a week's notice to me, that that should throw up a flag and go. This guy should never be cutting down to one forty five. And that mm. might have had nothing to do with his his recent issue. Maybe it was a concussion. Maybe it was something else. But if you can't make the weight class above you on a few days' notice, to me, you shouldn't be cutting that extra ten pounds ever. I mean, that to me, that's insane.
3: Yeah,
1: so, uh, John, I just wanted to ask you, do what's your take on on training smart? versus training hardest especially like you said you you're you're a four strike purple belt in jiu-jitsu um being being a medical professional i'm pretty sure a lot of guys come to you in, in the in the change room like hey dude i think i blew out my knee can you check it out <laughs> like you know so so uh being in that position as you're as you yourself someone that's rolling and training with guys do you ever feel like you got to pull a blue belt or a white belt 20 year old guy aside and say hey how about you slow down a little bit and not, maybe not kill, try to kill your yourself and everyone on the mats?
2: Yeah, so. I- there's a difference in my eyes from doing that in jujitsu versus doing that when you're getting hit in the head, you know, because the the difference between a brain injury and a, and a, a you know, an injury to a joint or something like that, the, the long-term significance of that is very different. Mm-hmm. It's funny because, you know, I'm always advocating people sparring smart and trying to, you know, stay fast, but light to the head and not doing a whole lot of heart sparring, making sure that if you get your bell rung, quote unquote, you take adequate time off but jujitsu wise i'm the guy that you know like literally last week i dislocated one of my fingers in the middle of a roll was able to reach out put it back in joint and just went right back to you know didn't even say anything about it and i roll when i'm kind of hurt all the time it's hard i think to have that conversation with folks especially somebody who's got a colored belt of some sort to tell them that they're being a little too aggro i've had that chat with some white belts before saying hey you know, you're not going to ever get better unless you kind of calm down and start trying to use technique. But, um, especially as one of the older guys on the mat, I often worry that, that, Hey, you need to kind of settle down, comes across as, Oh, this old guy can't keep up. So he's telling me to sort of settle down. I, I definitely do think that training smart is the way to go. Um, but, uh, it's, it's hard to get that point across sometimes.
1: Have you ever heard the, have you ever heard the, uh, the, the quote from Helio where he said, I'd like to cook him a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's pretty much an old, the old guy's game. I mean, and it, it works. I mean, not for nothing. I, I, uh, I, I roll with a lot of competitive younger dudes and, and um, I, I letting them, letting them go crazy on me for the first half of the round is usually how I, I wind up getting the advantage later. And, um, I think for me that, that that's the equivalent of, of, of training smart when you're grappling. But like you said, I know when striking comes into the fold, it's a, uh, it's a different ball game. Cause even, even if you're trying to control shots to the head, um, when you're going like hard to the body, light to the head, like I used to do when I did Ishin and karate, it was hard, hard shots to the body and, uh, you know, light contact to the head, but somebody always walked into something. I myself walked into a lot of things that, that, uh, you know, I saw, I, I lost some time for a little bit. So it's, um, it's definitely hard to control it with, when, uh, when, uh, adrenaline jumps in and, and blood gets going. So um I don't know. Uh the um the other thing about the uh uh looking at people while they're cutting as as somebody that's licensed. So I'm thinking about what's that what was that chick's name that they pulled for because they didn't like the way her lips look uh Matt not that Jessica, long ago.
0: Jessica Aguilar.
1: Yeah. Did you have an uh, did you write anything about that or have an opinion on on, on just pulling people up based on appearance?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's perfectly appropriate. And I think that's sort of the getting back to Max a little bit. I, that's the scariest thing about that situation is if he hadn't had that interview and Michael Bisping and, and kudos to him for calling him out on live TV, because especially given, you know, his employer is that there's definitely a risk to yeah. having pulled the co-main event off the air, basically by saying that. But if Max hadn't had that interview, there's a good chance he would have continued with his weight cut. He might have made weight. And gone and fought. So I, I think that when you hear that somebody got pulled because of how they look and you you see the way that people look that don't get pulled, there must have been a serious issue going on. Yeah. So I think that that's 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 probably very, very appropriate.
0: Well I had heard that he, he was rushed to the hospital on the on Monday. I think we kinda heard about his news about Wednesday or so.
2: Yeah um,
0: you know if a guy gets rushed to the hospital on fight week, I think there needs to be serious thought about Letting that guy go out and do, uh, you know, he did the the public workout. You know, anything other than maybe just sitting back and and relaxing. I mean i I don't know. I don't know how often people get rushed to the hospital on fight week, but you know, even as a fan who buys tickets and and gets disgusted when fights get canceled, you know, I don't want to see somebody die in there because the UFC is trying to. Or I shouldn't just say the UFC. Any promotion is trying to push somebody in to to keep a, a fight card intact.
1: Yeah, no, and we definitely don't want to see it uh, a fighter uh, because they have that fighting spirit, quote unquote, the warrior spirit or whatever it is, because obviously Max was ready to go until he got pulled. He didn't pull himself. So I just think I just feel like I mean, it's cool. And on one end, but obviously you want you want you want to see him fight again or, or at least retire healthy.
0: John, we in the past of some of our other shows, I think with John Johnny Hughes, we may have talked about some injuries we've seen over the years, or I think some of the ones were maybe ones that he had actually inflicted on opponents. But um, <laughs> as a ringside physician, have you have you ever ran into anything catastrophic, or have you been lucky enough to kind of avoid those events? No, I mean catastrophic. I've seen some people get some
2: pretty significant injuries. So the the first and probably the most impressive was I saw a guy uh get a tip fit fracture from a blocked, uh checked kick just you know a la cory hill or anderson silva Ooh. um which was <laughs> and it was it, the, the guy was a uh, army ranger he was actually active duty at the time and was fighting out of one of the the camps that's near one of the local army bases and he he had an impressively little reaction to that um he, you know, threw the kick, his leg broke, everybody in the arena heard it and saw it and his legs, you know, kind of dangling there. And he hopped on it a couple of times and his opponent stopped. Thank God. He realized that something was not right. And it, he had this look on his face, like he was trying to figure out how he could put his foot down to throw another strike and then realized and just sat down. But it, it was, it was, it was very impressive. Um, but fortunately for him, there's really no long-term consequence from that, Um lots of cuts and stuff like that some people have dislocated their shoulders actually saw a guy who dislocated his shoulder and relocated it himself in the middle of the fight and then got mad at me for stopping it uh, Mm -hmm. between rounds and not letting him continue it was actually it was an an amateur boxing fight of all things so you know totally from a you know lifetime or or um uh you know financial standpoint no impact to his career at all but uh fortunately i've not seen anybody get injured to the point where they had, you know, a life life changing or long, long term sustained injury. I thought I had a guy once who was going into something called rhabdomyolysis. If you really overexert yourself especially if you're a little bit dehydrated sometimes your muscles will start to break down and you start getting muscle proteins in your kidneys and that can be a very very serious thing it was after a muay thai fight and he was complaining about severe leg pain and wouldn't walk and then of course that's when he says you know i had rhabdo a couple years ago which of course he made no comment about either on his pre-fight physical where he got cleared by his his primary physician or when i saw him just before the fight but uh, a couple hours later he was perfectly fine
1: Wow. Do, you, do you ever uh just because like you said i know you've you've thought uh, st- you just said you stop fights you ever get any uh, negative feedback from the fans like like you suck or any of that stuff when, yeah, when you wave man. one off
2: there's been a, i mean a couple people yell stuff i get pretty thick skin you know i'm not there to to be a fan favorite i'm there to try to keep the fighters safe uh the time i was actually most worried about that was actually the first event i ever worked um there's a guy, he's in the UFC now, Justin Scoggins, who at the time was training with us. He's a local guy and had a huge following. So I mean there was literally hundreds of people there to see him fight. And about probably 45 or so seconds into the fight, he does a lot of head movement and he moved his head one way and the guy he was fighting moved his head the other and they just crashed heads and he got a pretty impressive laceration over his eye. It was in a bad spot. It was deep. It was bleeding right into his eye. So I went into the ring and um you know, put a towel on it for a second, took it off and, you know, could practically see a skull. And I'm like, dude, you know, I, I hate to do this to you, but we got to stop. And he was kind of upset, but not mad at me. And I, as I was walking out of the cage, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to have to find another school to train at. <laughs> know, you know, as soon as this event is over, Ray's going to grab me, yell at me, and tell me, you ever do that again, I'm going to kill you. But he was, he was, you know, totally cool. That actually said thanks because he was going to throw the towel in had I not, you know, stopped that. So that was a, It was a little scary for a second for me, but it was a good experience because it kind of brought home the fact that it's not my job to be thinking about what the fans think about this. I don't care what the promoters think about that. If they want to say, hey, you stopped this fight too early, we're not going to use you anymore. I mean, that's their prerogative, but I don't want to accidentally let somebody get hurt that, um, you know, I I could potentially have done something about. And I had a a couple of years later had a, a, a female fighter. Who had a similar she got caught I think it was a legal strike I think it was an elbow but got caught with an elbow in a fight that she was winning and probably was going to win but it was the same story it was in a bad spot it was bleeding right into her eye and when I opened as soon as the referee stopped the fight she immediately looked at me and as I was walking in the cage she was like don't stop the fight don't stop the fight don't stop the fight but I walked over I'm like sorry you know got to in the same thing in retrospect she was like you know I'm really glad you did that but it, that's that's why i'm there if these if the fighters were able to make good decisions about whether they should continue or not on their own you wouldn't need to have a ringside physician or a ringside medic or a cut man
0: yeah well wow this has been pretty uh informative as far as uh, hearing about some of this stuff i, I you, you don't we don't get a lot of this perspective um anywhere really i mean you, you hear about some of the cut men and stuff but to actually hear a doctor given given his perspective on on Stopping fights or or his opinion on the weight cuts and stuff has been pretty cool. So I appreciate you coming on with this.
1: Yeah, we definitely might have to tap you again in the in the near future because this was the, I mean, I actually I mean I I could go longer myself, but like Matt said, I mean this is a uh, very interesting. I mean I, I I'm 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 surprised I I've never interacted with you in the community. Uh, are you you said you post on the MMACommunity.com forum and yep. where where else?
2: That's pretty much it I, I have an account over at uh, the underground but I very rarely post there anymore and if I do it's usually in the BJj sub forum.
1: you should do like a, a like a combat sports health blog you know how there's like the combat sports law that Eric McGracken runs. you should yeah. write do something like that just uh, you know obviously, there's obviously
2: actually <laughs> go ahead
1: I'm just saying there's a you obviously have a lot of ins- a knowledge that that uh, I mean you cleared some things up for me. So, like, the whole thing about, about looking at someone, I, I had a different opinion about it until you explained it. So now I perfectly understand why they would pull people off of treadmills or based on, on on how their lips look and stuff like that. Um, So you should look into doing something like that.
2: Yeah, I actually thought about that, and a couple of years ago I wrote an article for uh, Carrick on the Underground, and it, it's been sort of surprising to me that there's very, very little interest in that. You know, the the time that... Uh, I get questions and stuff is usually after a specific episode. So like the Max Holloway thing, but as far as kind of general information and stuff, myself and a couple of other ringside physicians have tried starting something like that up and it almost always falls apart. So I haven't really put too much, too much effort into that. And ringside medicine is, you know, sort of a hobby for me. It's not something I ever intend to make any money. I actually don't accept payment for doing it. I just do it on a pro bono basis. Um, so most of the people who I've seen try to start blogs or try to do something with ringside medicine are trying to monetize it somehow. And then you start getting into some sort of hairy area sometimes where you're you're, you're doing more self-promotion than you really are trying to forward uh, the safety of the sport. So I've kind of shied away from that. But as stuff comes up and there's interest, you know, in a particular area or something like that, I'm happy to, to write things for either the underground or especially over at the MMA community and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, if you want to jump on here and, and and have a conversation, we'd be happy to have you back.
0: Before before we let you go, though, I, I want to point out that not only do you do this stuff, you know, you said you do pro bono work, and you, I, I think you've told me that you just do it because you want to make sure there's a good doctor on site and you know somebody to take care of the fighters, and that's that's honorable honorable work, uh, especially in such a violent sport, but you're also a big fan of the sport. Um, I met you the first time you were going out to, uh, to watch wonder boy, uh, fight in New York. I've run into you in Vegas, also supporting Steven. Um, I I obviously are a fan of Steven and and a friend of his. Um, how about some other fighters that you, uh, that you've over the years kind of latched onto, or somebody you'd consider can't miss that, that you, you watch fight every time that you can.
2: Yeah, so there's a there's a couple of people locally who I really like to watch. Uh, one of them you may have seen; he was on the Contender series, uh, Carl Reed or John Reed. He goes by Carl um, most of the time. Who's one of our wrestling coaches? Um, he's got a you know a great wrestling background. He's he's really athletic, super strong, and he's one of the he's got the highest fight IQ I think of anybody who I've ever met. He just it's almost impossible for him to make bad decisions in in the stress of the moment. So he's really, really exciting. And he's taken his wrestling work ethic and really applied it well to striking. So he's won a couple of his recent fights by pretty impressive knockouts. And I think that you're likely to see him pop up uh, in the UFC or Bellator in the not too distant future. And, um, Largely because of his work ethic and his fight IQ. He's one of those guys you get up five o'clock in the morning and check Facebook or Instagram and he's, you know, swimming laps and then two o'clock in the afternoon he's hitting mitts with Ray and then at night he's grappling and striking and stuff. He's just constantly working and, and making big, big strides. Did I meet him? Um, was he with you at, at UFC yes, in, in I, New York? That's right. Yeah. He was the, the the tall black guy who was sitting right next to me. That that Carl. That's Carl Reed. Yeah.
0: Okay, yeah. I remember you you kinda tapped me on the shoulder and go keep an eye out for this guy. You were telling me about his wrestling and how he was really helping Steven. I think he he, he was helping Steven train for Woodley. Um uh, yep, yeah, if he's I remember become,
2: correctly. Yeah, he's become one of Steven's main training partners because you know he's a big dude. He's he's you know, he probably walks around two twenty plus really, really strong, and he's, and he's in, you know, typical wrestler shape. He's just impossible to get that guy tired and a, a real grinder. So he's, if you can, Stephen gets used to trying to, to fight him off when he's pushing up against the cage and getting back up off the ground with him on it. It's been a huge boon for Steven. because, you know, Chris is fantastic, but he lives in New Jersey, so you can't be with him 24-7. So when uh, Steven goes up there, a lot of times Carl will go with him, and those guys together, are, it's a, that's a great camp.
0: Any other big name guys or old school fighters that you, uh, you know, just kind of became a fan of over the years?
2: Yeah. You know, I've always been a Chuck Liddell fan. I always I'm sort of skeptical of anybody who isn't a Chuck Liddell fan. I mean, he's just sort of I think, you know, kind of what MMA is all about. And on on the same on the same sort of page, Randy Couture, you know, just uh, some of the the guys when I really got into the UFC, watching it live and watching the pay-per-views, those were kind of their heyday. Used to love watching them fight. Uh, same thing with Leota Machida and, uh, Anderson Silva for the same reason. I love watching
0: those guys fight and I'm a big mighty mouse fan. I love watching that guy fight.
1: It's yeah, just... me too.
0: He's one of the few guys I've never seen mighty mouse fight live and I'm going to the event here in, um, what, two and a half, three weeks now. So definitely looking forward to that. I've, I've stated I'm not a huge fan of the smaller weight class, but, um, he's definitely one of those guys I still consider. a can't miss fighter to watch him fight so yeah and you know i like
2: watching guys go toe to toe and throw but i'm also a lot of the fights that the that you'll hear people complaining about online that are boring that end up being a tactical matchup either two grapplers who are kind of you know trying to fight under hooks the entire time or get head control the entire time or two strikers who are standing you know half an inch out of real striking range trying to find that opening and throw that correct thing to get the guy to go i find those kind of chess matches really interesting as well
1: yeah i'm with you on those
0: it's been kind of a theme and we've asked most of our guests, how do you see the Bellator heavyweight tournament uh, wrapping up here with uh, Son and Fedor and Bader uh, Mitrion?
2: Yeah. You know, that's a good question. Uh, my heart would love to see Fedor win that. I know that, you know, you're not wearing the sweater of glorious victory at the moment. I, think, <laughs> but, um, I know you're a huge Fedor fan. And like I said, my heart would love to see him win, but I think that, uh both, uh, Mitrion and and have a really good chance of taking that. And I'm, I'm really interested to see the next round of fights to see how that goes.
1: October 12th, I believe is the next one. Yeah, oh, I think that's right. Out this way in Mohegan Sun.
0: Yeah. I'm curious to see where they put the Fedor fight. If they do a big weekend, I think that'd be the smartest way for Bellator and really just promote the heck out of that weekend. I don't think off the top of my head, the UFC has anything. Yeah. The UFC scheduled for the sixth, though. So they'd have that whole weekend to themselves if they, uh, they do a back-to-back event and really promote it. So, well, cool, John, uh, it's been great talking to you. I, uh, like I said, you've been really supportive of this show since day one. And, uh, just been, you know, been cool when, when we've had a chance to run into each other, uh, whether it's in Vegas or in New York. Um, so uh, do you have anybody, any sponsors, any, any, kind, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know if you have anybody that helps you with your, your medical stuff or if you just want to throw out uh, where anybody can follow you or g- give your handle for the, the MMA community.com. Yes.
2: Yeah, so all my social media stuff online is all under the at SC MD moniker. Uh, I use that at, on uh, the MMA community. I use that over at the underground and then on Twitter, uh, most active at the underground or at the, um, the uh, MMA community is where I do probably 99% of my posting.
1: Well, you gotta start using Twitter, man.
3: (laughs)
2: Yep. And if anybody has any specific questions about something or, you know, an area they want to hear about, or if they, you know, like you guys have a, a question about something that's coming up, or you want me to talk about something in particular medical related or, you know, when when you start seeing more and more athletic commissions adopting the 10 point plan or when uh, hopefully after the ABC um, committee meeting or commission conference that's going on at the end of the month down in Orlando, hopefully you're going to see some changes to the way boxers are doing their weigh ins and weight classes. If that starts spreading over to MMA, I'd be happy to come talk about that or you can shoot me a message either on the MMA community or on Twitter and i will be happy to, to either come back on and talk to you all or answer whoever's question.
1: Cool. Just so uh, folks know we're on Spotify now. So the audio version will be on Spotify, iTunes, radio, public breaker. I forget where else we're. I think we're everywhere now. So,
0: yeah, I think we broke through. So, uh, yeah. And everybody (laughs) can follow us uh, at combat hour on, uh, on Twitter, uh, myself at MMA Hawk 21 on Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow Ed at Carbizal on Twitter. Um, Ed, uh, before we started the show, you had mentioned you uh, you did an interview earlier today that you're going to add to the end of this uh, end of this episode um, for the audio version. Uh, yes. Do you want to speak on that?
1: Yes, for our subscribers, audio subscribers, uh, bonus interview for you after this, Erin Blanchfield. She's 1-0 in MMA. She's making her Invicta FC debut at Invicta FC 30 uh, July 21st. Um, she's fighting a uh, – I forget her name her her opponent. Um, her her opponents making her MMA debut, but, uh, Aaron Blanchfield, she's EBI flyweight champ. She, she competed at EBI 12 and now she's fighting. She fought in CFFC. Now she's fighting in Invicta this month. So look for that. There'll be an article on my MMA news and, uh, the bonus, the audio for that will be at the end of this for anyone that subscribes to the audio stuff.
0: All right. Well, I look forward to hearing that and, uh, uh, our show next week. So, uh, thanks again, John, for joining us. Uh, good talk and uh, we look forward to talk to you talking to you again in the future great thanks for having me
2: see
1: you
0: take it easy take ed it easy. all
1: right uh aaron blanchfield you're uh fighting on invicta fc 30 july 21st um this is your second yep. mma fight Is uh-huh. a uh and you're fighting someone who's also who's making their mma debut altogether? Uh, how, how does it feel to get to where you wanted to be so fast. Uh, I watch your EBI stuff, so I kind of. Uh, it seems like you're ahead of your original plan.
3: Yes, well, EBI was like a great boost for me. Like I went into that um, not really knowing what to expect, like no one expected me to win or anything. But after getting that win, it really boosted like my career in jiu-jitsu and in MMA. So I had my first amateur fight that November, and I won that in the first round by armbar and then we were trying to find other amateur fights but we were just having people drop out like left and right so we got offered a pro fight we took it and i won in the first round of that as well and then invicta was very interested after seeing me win ebi and then my first pro mma fight so now we're here ready.
1: <laughs> that's cool i mean uh, congratulations on, on this on uh, the fast track into pro mma obviously you uh I know you said you had some kickboxing experience. So your that first fight was a knockout you said, right?
3: Uh my first amateur?
1: No, the oh, the, pro. the the pro one, the CFFC one.
3: Oh, the pro fight. Yeah, it was um it got stopped between the rounds. It was like a TKO because I was elbowing her a lot and she had a bad cut in her eye so the doctor um stopped it between rounds.
1: But uh, uh so the the uh, Invicta press release called you um a, a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu ace. Would you say you're more of a of a grappler, striker, or you just consider yourself well rounded already?
3: Um, I definitely consider myself well rounded. Like, just is definitely like my strongest suit, but my striking is very good. I've been doing grappling and striking since I was seven, so I feel very confident in both.
1: Wow, and 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 uh, if you don't mind me asking, I know when you did your when you won the EBI thing, um, they asked you how old you are. You, I mean, you're you're 20 years old, right? No, I'm 19. Oh wow! So that's like, uh, yeah. I mean, you're kind of like, uh, I mean, the Diaz brothers—they started fighting when they were 19. So I mean, you—it's like you're you're well before your prime. So you have you have a long way to go at flyweight.
3: Yeah, that's why Invictus is great because they have people like prodig who's like the girl that I'll be uh, fighting uh, next Saturday, uh, to people who can be UFC champions. So you can get a lot of experience there, and they're a great organization with great exposure.
1: Yeah, I was going to say the exposure is phenomenal. Even people that uh I mean, I've watched it with people that don't re- watch it regularly, but uh, when I bring up Invicta, they always say I've never seen a bad card from them. I mean, from first fight to the last fight, it's usually pretty exciting. So, that's great that yeah, you're making sure. your your debut there. And it's and it's obviously it's a uh, I know obviously a lot of people want to get into the UFC and and it's no secret that Invicta the fast tracks uh successful fighters into the ufc from invicta so is that obviously is that your game plan for this
3: yes i mean i definitely want to get some more experience with invicta but i know that yeah a lot of ufc takes a lot of their females from invicta because they know that they're a high-level organization that produce fighters so that's definitely the goal i definitely want to get into ufc one day and be the champ there
1: yeah and the, the division is relatively new for them for your weight class so I mean I, I would yeah. think I would think they would be watching your weight class uh, cl- more closely is that something yeah it's
3: a really exciting time for like flyweeds because they just opened up the division like a year ago at UFC so everybody's hungry for it
1: <laughs> so your opponent Brittany Cloudy uh, do you, I mean it's her de- pro debut do you know anything about her has there, has there any tape or anything you've been able to watch
3: Yeah, we looked her name up on YouTube, and we found uh, quite a few of her amateur fights. Uh, She's like a long, tall girl, so we're assuming she's probably going to want to strike and keep me away. She's not going to want to grapple with me, but we've been working uh, to fight people who are tall, good strikers, so I feel ready.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, are there any jitters? I mean, I'm I'm sure she's got some as far as, like, because of the platform and where you're fighting.
3: No, I'm pretty calm. I mean... I'm always ready to
1: compete, like, the bright lights don't bother me. Cool, so, um, do you, uh, like, I know you said you, you consider yourself pretty well-rounded, but do you have a preference of where you'd like to take the fights? I mean, as you've been doing both striking and the grappling since you were seven, but uh, uh, do you feel stronger with grappling? I'm only asking because of your EBI experience, it seems like that's, that's the, you, you kind of lean towards that more, is that is that a fair assessment?
3: yeah i'm i'm definitely i have more of a body type for like a grappler so i probably will be looking for takedowns in the majority of my fights against people because i feel like i'll always have like the edge in the grappling um but we'll see where the fight takes us I'll you don't know until you get in there so
1: yeah you know i'm always jealous of of, of you athletes that start training so young i mean uh as an old as an old man myself I um I kind of feel like uh, when you start as young as you did, and obviously, so you, you kind of you're you're already better than most older folks that start at a later age. Obviously, do you uh, is this something that that was ingrained in your mind that you wanted to do since you were seven? Uh, well, when I first
3: started, um, it was just more for self defense. It wasn't like I didn't want to make a career out of it. But once I was training for a few years. And um, started competing at like local naga's and grappler's clubs and I saw how I was doing very well against people like older than me and stuff. So by the time I was like twelve or thirteen, I wanted to fight. Like I felt pretty confident that I could make a good career out of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the EBI was definitely a good way to start. I know you won that that tournament. That was, that was I think that was EBI twelve, right? Yes,
3: yeah, EBI twelve.
1: So any uh, any plans to do any uh, competitive grappling on the side, or are you strictly MMA now?
3: Um, well, right now, I've been focusing on MMA. Like, if EBI does the 125 again, like my division, I'm the current champion now, I would try to go back and defend it. Um, but right now, I'm really just focusing on MMA. They haven't told me when they're going to do the next uh, flyweight, so I'm not sure about that. But right now, it's definitely MMA.
1: So, excuse me, if you... um. I just found out too, uh, I I didn't know you were on the East Coast, so uh, are you in New York or New Jersey?
3: Um, Well, I live in New Jersey, but I also, I train in New York and New Jersey.
1: Oh, so are you like one of Henzo's uh, students, or or what Yeah, I train
3: at Silver Fox BJJ, which is a Henzo affiliate, so I also go with Henzo Gracie
1: NYC a few times a week. So are you into the leg lock game and all that stuff? Like everybody seems to be in the new virus going around the grappling circuit.
3: Yeah, since I've been training there, I definitely gotten better at it. But um, I, I still definitely like like my top pressure game. Like that's where I'm. Uh, I feel very comfortable at. But my leg locks are getting better too.
1: Do you think um, Do you think that type of grappling is something that's better suited for MMA? Uh, the top pressure game versus people that like to go for leg locks in the fifty
3: fifty. Yeah, I believe the like more wrestling type of um, top game jitsu is definitely better for MMA because there's strikes involved. Like, leg locks could work, but you're definitely taking a bet, uh, the bigger risk of getting hit and taking some punishment for going
1: for those. Um, but, yeah, as long, that's what I think, yeah. Cool. So, I am um, all. I mean, I always tend to root for being a, a, a from the Northeast myself. I always tend to get into all the New York, New Jersey-based fighters. So it's, it's, it's nice to hear somebody making their way uh, through the pro circuit the way you are. I'm, I'm glad you made the time to talk today. Yeah. Um, one last you. question for me: uh, do, you, uh, do you do fight predictions when you're going to? I mean, obviously, this is your your second fight. Do you, do you have a preferred way to finish uh, your upcoming opponent for Invicta FC? Um. Well, I preferably want to finish. Uh, prob- this
3: one I can see a submission happening, but we'll see what happens. I'm excited. I'm definitely ready to fight
1: and get the finish. All right. Cool. So that's uh, July 21st, Invicta FC 30 um uh hopefully you get that two and oh and then uh i mean i i feel like they 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 start taking ladies into the ufc when you get like three or four fights in so and you're you're young and you have a bright future ahead of you so i really appreciate you taking the time to talk thank you thank you